0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to One Time Pod. My name is Isaac Taylor. I'll be your host for this episode. As much as we would like to know the future with absolute certainty, our predictive powers just aren't capable of accurately pinning down the far flung consequences of our actions. Take the scene behind me, for example. The year is 1789. A large sailing vessel has just pulled into port after spending a long time away from the United States on what was undoubtedly a tiring trip. The crew and ship are almost ready to return home for a well-deserved rest, but there's one more checkpoint they must cross before they can do so. Ah, here they are now. Border agents, come to check the ship for contraband. You see, we decided we couldn't let just anyone bring things into the country at their leisure. Who knows what they could be carrying with them? Stolen goods, dangerous weapons, spies. There are countless possibilities, none of which are particularly healthy for the nation or its people. In order to handle this potential threat, the government created the Collection Act of 1789. This document established the United States customs, as well as what would come to be known as the Border Exception which states that searches of those entering the country can be conducted without reasonable suspicion or probable cause. At the time, this development was of no major concern, but as stated earlier, we cannot know what negative effects our actions may bring upon a distant future. In this case, the creators of this piece of legislation couldn't possibly have known that their new rule would pose a threat to the privacy of the very people it was meant to protect. Ghassan and Nadia al-Assad had reached the border. They were just minutes away from their home, the United States. The married couple from Massachusetts was returning from a family vacation to Quebec along with their daughters and some other family members. The mood of their fun family outing had been dampened a bit in the final stretch. Their 11-year-old daughter had come down with a fever, so the family's primary concern had been attending to her health. If the family was expecting a smooth return home, their hopes were dashed upon reaching the US-Canada border. There, they were directed to a secondary inspection, apparently because a customs and border protection supervisor felt like ordering one. Gassan's explanations that his daughter was ill and that the family had to move quickly did little to sway the officers, and so his questioning commenced, accompanied by a dive into his unlocked phone. Cut to five hours later. The al were still at the border and the CBP officers had set their sights on their next subject for interrogation, Nadia al-Assad. She was asked for her password, but this time, the officer's request for access to a member of the family's phone was met with much more resistance. You see, Nadia wore a headscarf in public at all times in accordance with her religious beliefs. This complicated the officer's request due to the existence of photos featuring a headscarfless Nadia in her camera roll. She simply could not allow male officers to see them. Unfortunately, the officers weren't particularly accommodating. The family was presented with an ultimatum, turn over the password or turn over the phone. Because Nadia needed her phone for work, she reluctantly gave up the password, but she remained insistent that only a female officer search the device. Officers informed her that it would take two hours for a female officer to arrive at the scene and then additional time for the search to be conducted. Throughout this encounter, the al were still dealing with their sick child. Now, with Nadia's interactions with the officers bringing the family's total time spent at the border to six hours, and the possibility of that time being extended further, the family gave in. Ghassan and Nadia simply abandoned their phones at the border and continued their trip home. Fifteen days after the incident, the al phones were returned, in that time, they'd had to spend $1,000 on replacements, but they were pleased to have their old devices back. Any relief they may have experienced was short-lived, however. Gasan, finally reunited with his phone, attempted to watch a video of one of his daughter's graduation. He was met with only a message stating that the file in question no longer existed on his phone's internal storage. The al may have been our focus today, but they are certainly not the only people who've been in such a situation. In fact, they would go on to file and win a suit along with nine others in the American Civil Liberties Union against U.S. Customs and Border Protection, under the basis that their treatment that night violated their First and Fourth Amendment rights. So how exactly could such a gross invasion of privacy be allowed in the first place? This is where we call our attention back to 1789 and the border exception. As stated before, this exception allowed for the suspicionless search of all people and vessels entering the United States and was primarily used to board and search ships. It has remained relatively unchanged over the years, something which some may see as a positive. However, it is this stagnant nature that poses a problem for the privacy of the public. If I were to list all of the things with which we interact on a daily basis that didn't exist in the 1700s, I could go on for well over the length of this podcast. The border exception was created with ships in mind. It's also worth mentioning that commercial ships offering leisure voyages to the public were non-existent at the time, which narrows the original focus of the border exception down to cargo and merchant ships. In 1789, the most sensitive information one could come across on a ship would likely be housed in papers or diaries, the former likely being present in staggering quantities, and the latter likely being written for the writer alone and not necessarily with ease of reading and comprehension in mind. This was the world in which the border exception was created, a world that would be shaken by the invention of new technologies in the coming centuries. Cars and airplanes would make international travel as much of a matter of pleasure as one of business, and the rise of cell phones and laptops would allow us to carry terrifying amounts of neatly organized personal information in small, lightweight slabs of metal literally everywhere we go. Needless to say, these were not developments planned for in 1789, but they are now part of our world yet we base our interactions with them on laws written when mere mention of their existence would have been nothing more than science fiction. Taking that into account, it would seem as if an easy prescription for this problem would be the reevaluation of old legislation. However, this is easier said than done. The process of reevaluating old laws is intentionally difficult. Allowing for legislation to be too easily changed would destabilize American law completely. Depending on a law's importance, a reevaluation may end up having to go all the way to the Supreme Court, which only hears a fraction of the cases pitched to it. Reevaluating old laws is also an act that brings one into direct conflict with originalism, the relatively popular idea that foundational documents such as the Constitution should be interpreted based only on their original intended meaning. And of course, some may simply prefer to buff the government's powers of surveillance in an attempt to ensure safety. Courts in some cases similar to that of the al Assad's, argued that the immense amount of information that could be concealed using electronic devices only further justified searching them. Additionally, while updating laws may help diminish the threat of abuses of power, after a few years, some updates would become insufficient. For example, courts currently lean towards prohibiting government officials from compelling suspects to give up their phone and computer passwords but they're more undecided when it comes to doing the same for biometric data such as fingerprints and facial features. As it happens, many tech manufacturers in recent years have opted to allow users to unlock their devices with either biometric data or passwords, creating something of a loophole for law enforcement. On a side note, for those of you deeply concerned about your privacy, there is a workaround for the biometric data issue. On Apple devices, holding the power and volume buttons while the lock screen is open prompts the user to shut down their device, and upon pressing cancel, users will be required to enter their password to gain access to their phone. For Android users, the same effect can be achieved by opening the Security and Location tab in Settings, selecting Lock Screen Preferences, and then toggling Show Lockdown Option. But I digress. The point of the matter is, although it is an excuse to let the right to privacy, something guaranteed to US citizens, to fall by the wayside, there really isn't anything stopping what we see as a perfectly sound and reasonable piece of legislation from becoming tomorrow's border exception. <laughs> Ensuring privacy for the public is no simple task. We can spend our time brainstorming the most foolproof laws and rules to protect the public, but how can we include safeguards in those laws to protect the rights of those living in a world with variables we can't imagine? If our privacy measures have an expiration date, what level of privacy do we hope to achieve? What level of privacy can we achieve? I don't have the answers, but I do hope you've found a new question to ponder in the last few minutes. Thanks for listening.